0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Healing of the Nations podcast. I'm your host Peter Chung and I'm with Pastor Adam Ramdon. He's all the way from the UK. We're here right now in GYC. Pastor Ramdon, thank you for taking valuable time to join us in this podcast. Thank you. Pastor Ramdon, can you tell us uh, something about your ministry and what you do?
1: Yeah, we're doing a ministry called Lineage Journey. It's a, a multimedia resource that we've put together that helps people understand the connection between the past, the present and the future. And so the, the most recent resources that we've made has been a series of videos on church history, starting off with the time of Constantine and then charting all the way down to the present time um, to show people where they come from, where their heritage is, where their lineage comes from. That's what we call use the word lineage because, you know, oftentimes we get asked the question as individuals, where do we come from? But where do we come from spiritually? That kind of is the, is the question behind the series.
0: So how did you develop a love for church history?
1: I've always been interested in history, uh, secular history always interested in church history as well to see how the past impacts the present. I mean, some people think history is kind of isolated from the present or it's boring, but I think it's always interesting to know why today we do certain things because of decisions and circumstances that happened in the past. And so to me, that connection between the past and the present has always been an interesting one um, that I've always liked looking at.
0: So how relevant is the Protestant Reformation to today? Um, Linage is obviously focusing a lot on the Protestant Reformation. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's very relevant. Uh, that's why we've done the video series. Um, it's relevant, but it's also forgotten. So part of the reason for doing it was because a lot of people have forgotten uh, that it even took place, or even if they know that it took place, they've forgotten the reasons for it. And so even today you have Protestants that don't really know what a Protestant is. So, doing the series helps to kind of root people, we hope, if they go through it and watch it as to what a Protestant is, and that the reasons for the protest then are still relevant today.
0: Now, for the secular mind, in certain circles, Mm -hmm. people view Protestants as such as the Puritans, Mm -hmm. as religious repressives, Mm -hmm. in uh, inhibiting religious liberty, or Oliver Cromwell in... uh, in the history of uh, Great Britain Mm -hmm. with how we deal with Ireland. So Mm -hmm. what is the true nature of religious liberty in connection with Protestantism?
1: The true um, foundation, so to speak, of religious liberty and Protestantism, you would say, is the belief of the separation of church and state. That the state has no right to enforce morality over society, and neither does the church have a right to ask the state to enforce their moral religious beliefs. And so... Uh, that the state and the church stay out of each other's affairs. I mean, that's very simplistic, but in many ways the Protestant Reformation goes back to that. Europe had a Catholic Church and the Protestants were, were saying, listen, you guys can't control the church and the state. We need to have freedom of religion. And so I think it's still relevant in society as a whole because, you know, we, we still have people, wh- whether you're a Christian or not, you, ne- you need to have the right to believe what you want to believe and to practice what you want to practice in peace and quiet.
0: So how did this schism happen between those that are more suppressive in Protestantism and those that believe in the separation of church and state?
1: Um, When you look through the Reformation, there's different things. You've got a thing called the Magisterial Reformation. That's really the Lutheran Church, the Anglican Church, uh, the Calvin or the Reformed Church. The Magisterial Reformation, if you were to summarize it, countries that were Catholic became Protestant, but the structure of how the church and state interacted with each other stayed very much the same. So the, the church still relied on the support of the state. So in Germany, you had an official church, the Lutheran Church. In England, the Church of England was officially run by the king. Um, in, in Norway and Sweden, the Lutheran Church was officially... So the, the problem is that they never really... Uh, what would the word be? Um, separated. Then you have the Radical Reformation. The Radical Reformation saw that there should be a separation and that the state had no right to enforce um, religious conviction over the people. And that kind of separation or misunderstanding comes then.
0: Do you think the separation also involves a separation between civil and moral law?
1: Yeah, good question. I, I think so because, you know, when you look at the Ten Commandments, um, you've got, uh, some would say, the first table and the second table. The first table is the first four commandments that deal with our relationship with God. The second table is Commandments 5 through 10, which deals with our relationship with humankind. Now, in, in, in say, America or England, we, we rely on the state to enforce the second table. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, etc. The state enforces that, has the, the authority to legislate in that area. However, we don't want the state to enforce in the first four commandments, where it says, have no other gods before me. No, no, no. That's between us and God. So, you have some Christians today, though, and in the Magisterial Reformation, They wanted the state to enforce all Ten Commandments. And the problem today is you've got some Christians that are saying, we need the state to enforce all Ten Commandments again. No, 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 no. The state can enforce five through ten, but they cannot enforce one through four. And the Radical Reformation saw this distinction. And I think as Christians today, um, whether we're Christian or not, we need to understand the distinction and understand that the state has a realm to delve into 5 through 10, but not 1 to 4. And that's a big distinction that many Christians miss today.
0: In the United States, we have the religious right, mm-hmm. who is very active in politics and trying to assert legislation and morality. Is mm-hmm. there something similar in Europe or in the UK?
1: Um, probably not. We, we struggle more with the secular left. So even in America, you've got the, you've got the tension between the religious right um, who want to almost turn America into a Christian republic um, and you 've got the struggle between them and the sec- secular liberals on the left um, in Europe we tend to have a much stronger secular liberal on the left um, and we really don 't have the religious right so strong so it's it's a slightly different landscape over there
0: so in the UK
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, I took constitutional British history back in college i 'm trying to remember no, you'
1: probably know more than me then <laughs> uh,
0: you have a unitary government a fusion of powers not mm-hmm. Uh, separation of power say the United (coughs) States the three branches and Also, if I remember correctly the state sponsors the Anglican Church. Is that correct? That's correct So what are the implications of that? Is that a big deal in the UK or
1: I think the implications are that it kills religion? Because if you look at Europe all the countries where you have a state church an official church where essentially the ministers are paid by the state any country where you have that. The religion weakens. America was built on on the great principle. I think it was Benjamin Franklin or one of the founders who said, "We want to build a church without a pope and a state without a king." And it was Benjamin Franklin who said, "When religion is good, it takes care of itself. Um, when religion is weak, it seeks the arm of the state to help enforce it." In Europe, you have a a point where this, this the church relied on the state, and today most countries in Europe only five percent of people go to church. They, they, they People got tired of, of this, what they would view as a corrupt church, what they would view as an institutional church, and it kind of killed religion. I think religion has to be something that is free. It has to be something that we do of our own free will, and it's not something that we, we have enforced on us. Otherwise, it kills it.
0: So in uh, the UK, taxpayer money goes to the Anglican ministers.
1: Yep, yep. My, my I have a cousin who is in Iceland. She's a Lutheran minister and she's paid from the government and, and in fact in their churches there, they do not even they don't have a tithing system They don't even take offering like it's not part of the culture. So like it's just if they were to lose that monetary source Church is over
0: does the uh, seventh-day Adventist church raise issues about that in Europe We
1: do I don't I've never seen them raise issues about that in particular. I think he, he, you pick and choose your battles, um, but uh, yeah, I haven't seen people raising those issues, but they, they, they are active in other areas, I guess.
0: Now you've raised concerns by your posts and social media mm-hmm. of the uh, growing right-wing extremism that's going on in various nations, in the United States, mm-hmm. even in Europe and mm-hmm. whatnot. Can you expound more about that from a prophetic sense, why we should be concerned?
1: I think we need to be concerned anytime one group infringes the freedom and rights of another group we should be concerned whether it's our rights or someone else's rights because anytime a society restricts the 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 freedom of a particular subculture in the group it can easily be moved to another subculture or another another group within that that society and you know increasingly in many countries you have got the religious right or sometimes it's more of a nationalistic a movement that doesn't want to have immigrants, or they don't want Muslims, or they don't want this, or they don't want that. And some of us may say, well, that's not me, so that's okay. Well, no, 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 because those same attitudes can simply just move from one group to another. And when we've been quiet, as other people have had their, their constitutional rights ignored and violated, who's going to speak up when it comes to us? You know, you, you've probably seen that famous poem that was by a German pastor, I forget his name exactly, um, German Lutheran pastor who said, "When they came for the communist, I didn't say anything because I wasn't a communist. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I said nothing for I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I said nothing for I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to say anything. You know, I, I never want us to be in a situation where we haven't spoken for others' rights, and then when the people come for us, you know, there's no one to speak for us."
0: Now, here in the United States, we have some issues with. The religious right do you see any concerns going on in the united states from someone from across the pond so to speak of- i think
1: so because america's a country that was founded on on liberty mm-hmm. you know and and being open and accessible to to the you know what your statue of liberty says give me your poor your tired your huddled masses yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming sure. send these tempest-tossed ones to me and i lift my lamp by what the golden door or something and you know america was founded on accepting pilgrims accepting people who had been persecuted in other countries and it's a terrible shame to then see that in this country that the majority now has forgotten their own persecutions in the past and is now seeking to mandate and persecute others um it's it's a big concern because of all the countries in the world and this is not to kind of you know whatever, of all the countries in the world, America is the country with the best record of religious liberty. And so in many ways, the world looks to America as the benchmark as to how you know, minority groups are dealt with by the majority. In other countries, you just have kind of you know, minority groups um, persecuted. America has a representative form of government where minorities are represented and have their rights represented. When these are under threat here, what does that say for the rest of the world? It's, it's a scary situation.
0: So in other words, where America goes, the world goes. They
1: do, they do. And in this area, America is a leader and they need to continue to be a leader so that other people can look up to it and be like, you know.
0: Another controversial word that we struggle with here in the States is the word social justice. In some circles of the church is a dirty word. Mm. In other circles of the church is a present truth, so to speak. Mm-hmm. How should the Seventh Adventist Church react to social justice issues or?
1: That's a good question and I think we have forgotten our heritage and our heritage as Adventists was understanding the distinction between the first table and the second table in the law and we understood that civil morality the second table commandments 5 through 10 is is okay if the state legislates in that area but not the first table now, understanding that distinction is almost like a, a, a new belief in America today. And I think social justice, or you, we can understand social justice from the point where we can rely on the state to enforce certain inequalities in society. As a Christian, um, I mean, in fact, social justice, what does social justice mean? I mean...
0: Some people may define it as black lives matter, police brutality, uh, sure. racism.
1: And I think all of those things come under the umbrella, but. That's a, that's a narrow definition, I would say. Social justice, if you would define the word justice, means to make right. That's true. Yes. Justice is to make right. So social justice is to make right the wrongs in social society. As a Christian, should we be seeking to make right the wrongs in social society? I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat or whatever your political persuasion is. We should be seeking to make right the wrongs in society. And when our brother is, or sister are having their rights trampled on, we should seek to stand with them. Um, the Bible has numerous references about the widow, the fatherless, the poor, the afflicted. You know, uh, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17 is a strong text for social justice. Um, Proverbs 31 verse 9 is a strong text for social justice as well. And then Micah 6, 6 verse 8, what does the Lord require of you but to, you know, do justly, seek, you know, seek mercy, do justly, and walk humbly with thy God. So I think there is a biblical mandate for it. How that exactly is interpreted and applied on the ground, we have to pray for wisdom in our context. Um, but there's definitely a mandate for us to seek for the rights of the afflicted and the oppressed.
0: Recently, because of the recent election and people becoming more vocal with politics and partisan politics here in the United States, there's been some issues with um, divisions of race and politics and partisan politics within Seventh Avenue and social media here in America. In the UK, how is the church? Is it a diverse church? Is it a monolithic church? How are the relationships racially in the churches? Um,
1: Interesting question. It's quite a diverse church in many ways, but the church in the UK is largely a church built up either of first, second, or third generation immigrants. Probably 90% of the church is that way. So it's a different dynamic to maybe the church. So the majority population is the minority in the church. So that has its own challenges when it comes to church growth um, and, and, and other things. It does have its challenges. It's got some p- positives, but it also has challenges. So it's kind of a unique. There's other places in the world where you see that situation, but it's in some ways kind of unique.
0: Uh, two more questions. I mm-hmm. know we're pressed for time. Um, as Seventh-day Adventists, how should we be actively involved in the religious liberty issues?
1: How? Um, I think we need in our church, and I, I don't have an extensive answer on this question. To be honest, I think we need lawyers in our church that are able to defend the rights of other Adventists when they have their, you know, their their, their work rights under threat and, and things like that. I think we should also just not just seek to defend our own rights, but the rights of others as well, so that like a religious liberty is almost an outreach as well as opposed to just taking care of our own um, And I think you know, the more we do that the more we recognize as being leaders in that area for society not just for ourselves
0: and final question as You did the lineage series Who do you see as the champions of religious liberty in the Protestant Reformation?
1: John Wycliffe was a key one. He was called the morning star of the Reformation John Wycliffe's views on church and state were very similar to, say, Roger Williams. Um, I mean, obviously, very kind of more basic, but John Wycliffe wanted to strip the church of its financial uh, support from the state. He wanted basically a separation financially of church and state, which was way ahead of his day. So in, in that sense, he was um, he was way ahead of his time, John Wycliffe. Some of the other reformers, like even Martin Luther, John Calvin, the reality is um, they didn't quite get this whole church-state issue. Um, it's the radical reformation um, the Anabaptists that really understood that. We don't have too many names from those movements, but they were the real founders of religious liberty. So the Anabaptists and, and who their descendants became, people like the Mennonites and and, and and groups like that, they were the ones that really got this issue. Um, and they were persecuted by both Protestants and Catholics, sadly. Yeah.
0: Do you think that uh, we're living in very serious times today?
1: I think so. We are seeing uh, liberty under threat. We have an age, I guess you'd call it the post-fact society. People don't know what's true, they don't know what facts are right, they don't want news is news, and people are living in a society where they don't trust much. They make opinions based on very little evidence, and that's scary. Um, And people take stands, significant stands, and are willing to follow other people. Um, makes strong stands without really having strong uh, research. We, we, we're not a society that researches anymore, that really knows the issues. We just kind of jump to conclusions and people pick who they like based on what their hair color is or based on what their hairstyle is or whether they look nice or whether they sound good, um, as opposed to really investigating what people stand for and the issues that they, that they are standing for. So I think in that sense it's scary that we live in a society that's not really... Um, educating yourself and researching like they used to.
0: Well, thank you so much, Pastor Ramdon, for your time. Uh, hey, really thank you. Appreciate your insights. Um, and good to get another perspective outside of North America. What's going on? So sure, uh, we're sure. a global church, and yeah, we are. And uh, it's it's great appreciation for your time. Can you close us with a word of prayer? Sure,
1: sure. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to speak and to discuss some of these key issues together. We pray, Lord, that you would bless um, those that those that are listening right now, and that as we grapple with some of these uh, issues in our own lives and contexts, that you would guide us on what things to make us stand for and, and how to apply these in our life, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.